What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another wonderful episode of Fraternity. I'm your little brother, Danny, and I'm here with my big brother, Sean. Are you threatening me? Is that a threat? <laughs> Go ahead and threaten me. I'll stick those crutches up your moldy ass, you fucking clown. We're bringing you no shortage of quotes this October. It's the second week of October. We're bringing you another great horror movie where we're going to discuss it, analyze it, and just shoot the shit between two bros. This week, we are talking about The Mangler. Directed by Toby Hooper. Based on a story by Stephen King. It's our second Stephen King adaptation that we're covering. Isn't that exciting? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm just letting you know right now that this episode will live or die on my Ted Levine impressions. (laughs) We love to hear them over here. We love our impressions. And uh, your Ted Levine is spot on, I got to say. Well, thank you. I'm glad because it's not the easiest, but I love this movie so much that it's almost second nature with some of his dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm taking it you went into this one blind, Danny. Completely blind. You know, sometimes I even read the description on some movies, but this one, I didn't know jack shit. Just went in. And enjoyed it for what it is. And uh, yeah, Sean, why don't you lead us in with your story time? Well, let me start off by saying that I love The Mangler. It's definitely one of my favorite horror films that came out sandwiched between the 80s horror era and the Scream influence era. I guess you could say... There's a little bit of me in that mangler, and a little bit of it in me. At the same time, I would not scoff at anyone who said they didn't like this movie, even if they thought it was downright bad. I can definitely see its faults, but that does not change my feelings for it whatsoever. I think this is a movie that a lot of people would refer to as a guilty pleasure. I, though, have loved this movie ever since I first rented it on VHS from Blockbuster at the age of 11. And you already covered it. It had three names that made this a no-brainer. Toby Hooper, Stephen King, and Robert England. Ted Levine's name didn't mean a whole lot to me back then, but it definitely does now because he makes this movie what it is for me. I would show every friend that I could this movie, and I had some really good times doing it. This is also a movie that has never really received much love in the physical media department. Besides owning the VHS, I remember finding it on DVD one Halloween on an end cap, and then once I started collecting my Blu-rays, it was easily at the top of my wish list. But none of the boutique labels made a move on it for a really long time. And I eventually got sick of waiting, so I bought a digital copy of it. And then, as luck would have it, Scream Factory did get around to releasing this, showing it some love, and I finally had the Mangler back in a proper horror collection. What I hope to achieve with this episode is to get you to watch the Mangler for the first time 
or to reevaluate it. I'm not sure even if Danny likes this movie or what he thought of it, but I'm going to do my best to convince him and you to love it if you don't. And if that's the case, Danny, do let me know. (laughs) Well, I think I have a lot to say about The Mangler, and it's a bit of both positive and negative. I think mostly positive, if I'm being honest. Right on. So The Mangler is some small-town horror. I love me some small-town horror, and this is some really small-town horror. It's got some truly bizarre characters. Dare I say some of the most bizarre to ever grace the screen. It has some questionable acting, but the roles that need to overperform to make this a success definitely hit their marks. I think one of the issues with this movie is that it takes place in one night. There's definitely a lot that transpires through the course of this movie. And I'm not sure how things are in the short story, but I like to think it probably took place over a couple of days. Because you do get a lot of character development. And it's all crammed into this 24-hour window, and it kind of cheapens it. I will say, though, the more I watch this movie, Danny the more I'm convinced that it's intentionally somewhat of a comedy. Because I find it really funny. I'm not sure about you, but it's super dry, super dark, and I can definitely see it falling flat for a lot of people. Like, it's so dry, I don't think I noticed it for the longest time. (laughs) The thing about it, too, though, is... This movie has a ludicrous possession plot. And despite the movie being pretty funny, it always plays the horror very seriously. Like the comedy is never at the expense of the horror. And they never leap at the opportunity to make fun of what is such a ridiculous concept. I mean, at one point, a dude is getting his arm bitten off by an icebox for crying out loud. And on top of that, You've got this grand social commentary about the plight of the blue-collar worker as they're literally crushed by the machine and the exploration of the cultish corruption of the elite. It's all there, but it isn't like a message that's explicit. Like, it just sort of sits there. It doesn't yell the social commentary at you. It just sort of murmurs it under its breath. It assumes you're more occupied with a demonically possessed laundry machine, and that we are. So let's punch the clock at the Blue Ribbon Laundry and get on with the Mangler. Oh man, this is going to be a really fun episode, I can already tell. By the way, Sean is just oozing excitement with his (laughs) descriptions. But before that, I just wanted to say you can follow us on Twitter. Go over to Twitter. Our handle is at Fraternity. Give us a follow. Give us some likes. Give us some retweets. It helps us grow our brand and further our reaches into the horror netscape on the internet. We want to be the number one horror podcast on the internet. And you can help us do that by going over to Twitter. And we have an email. Our email is Fraternity at gmail.com. That's Fraternity at gmail.com. Send us an email, questions, comments, anything at all. We'd love to open a dialogue with you, chit-chat, 
do whatever. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like Fraternity, if you love Fraternity, even if you hate Fraternity, you can go over to your podcast platform of choice. Give us a review. It helps us in the algorithm and all that jazz and, again, grows our podcast. One thing I didn't mention, and it's thanks to everything that I did mention, is that this movie has a very strange atmosphere. I love that you brought that up because this movie feels completely dreamlike in its atmosphere is the word I kept going back to. Yeah, it's weird. It's very esoteric. It doesn't feel like the real world. Uh, dreamlike is what I liked to go with. <laughs> right on. I was watching some bonus features too, and this was actually shot in South Africa. And I wonder how much that causes the strange atmosphere, because it is obviously set in America, but something's not quite right, you know? Yeah, that that's very interesting. And there are just so many like cool sets, you know, like obviously you have the the laundry, the laundromat set, but then you have like Johnny's house and it's like their backyard is so like unique and like eye grabbing, eye catching, you know, like there's so many little things here and there. <laughs> it, it's just like, what the hell is this movie? <laughs> Yeah, speaking of the laundry, I feel it all really starts there because the scenes inside the Blue Ribbon Laundry are so chaotic. There's people all over the place, lots of moving parts to these scenes. And we first meet the foreman, who seems ready to drop dead from a coronary at any moment. I just loved him yelling and barking orders like <laughs> as soon as the movie started. I was like... I don't know what this movie's going to be, but this is already, like, great and interesting. <laughs> I found him to be the perfect summation of the movie. Like, someone caught in the lurch between the haves and the have-nots. And no amount of dignity or righteousness can course-correct this corrupt system, you know? Right, because at first glance, it's like he's... You almost think he's the top dog, but then you learn he's just kind of the underling to Gartley and you know this foreman is struggling with like what's right and what's wrong it's really uh interesting stuff to think about and bite into we also meet the true star of the show here which is the machine called the mangler so what do you think about this machine Danny I mean, what else can you say but this is just a grand spectacle <laughs> <laughs> Of a machine, of set design, of costume design, whatever you want to call it. It's just this behemoth of machinery on screen is just so great to look at. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is what would make or break this movie, you know? And they nail it. Yeah, there was a moment where when I was first watching, I was like, okay... This is going to be like the centerpiece of the film. And I think I'm okay with that. You know, <laughs> there's sometimes where you realize a film isn't going to go too further out the reaches of its setup and plot. And 
Sometimes it's like, all right, I get what you're doing. Toby Hooper is not a master of horror for nothing, that's for sure. So we meet an older lady named Mrs. Frawley. We also meet this new girl that no one seems to like named Lynn Sue. And then we have our final girl of sorts, this young girl named Sherry Olette. And our inciting incident is Sherry slicing her hand on a clamp and delivering some nice splatter on the mangler. And then two jackasses moving an icebox bump into the machine and cause sparks and some kind of explosion to occur. And we may not know it yet, but Sherry is a virgin. And feeding this virgin blood to the mangler is a first step in a conjuring of a demonic beast inside the machine. What this also does is introduce Bill Gartley, the owner of the Blue Ribbon Laundry. You know, it's amazing that they even had a factory to film all of this in when you consider how much Robert England chews up the scenery. (laughs) What did you think of this performance? I mean, this performance is just amazing. I mean, you gotta love the costume design with both of his legs. (laughs) You know? Like, he can barely walk. And he's got crutches, too. He's got eyeglasses with one shade to hide his blind eye and he just looks gross his face is full of disgusting disfigurements (laughs) (laughs) it's as if satan himself took human form inspired by the kentucky colonel is how i saw it that's a great description we then get a not very inspired introduction to our hero Ted Levine as Officer John Hunton. And we're going to get to know and appreciate this character over the long run. But for now, let's focus in on this opening kill of Mrs. Frawley. Sherry Olette's bandaged wound starts oozing blood as we see Mrs. Frawley working by the mangler. Eventually, she's startled by the foreman and winds up spilling her pills on the machine. And these pills contain belladonna or Deadly Nightshade. So with that, this conjuring is now complete, and the Mangler craves a sacrifice, and finds it in Mrs. Frawley, who gets caught in the machine trying to fetch her pills back out. I don't see how any horror fan can't appreciate the death of Mrs. Frawley. Easily one of the most unique and gruesome kills out of the 90s. We see her arm getting crushed as others attempt to pull her out. Blood is spurting everywhere. The machine won't turn off. Bill Gartley is just going crazy on the upper balcony as all of this is taking place. And this movie has an R-rated version and an unrated version. And I've got to say, it really makes all the difference here in the unrated version because there's a few additional frames of Mrs. Frawley's skull crushing under the roller. And they may amount to, like, maybe a second. But it just adds such a level of brutality, especially when you hear, like, the bone-crunching sound effects. Yeah, I ended up streaming the R-rated version, and I gotta say... Yeah, that description of uh, her skull getting crushed (laughs) definitely sounds like it's worth the price of admission. (laughs) Speaking of sound, Danny, you know how much I hate 
choir vocalizations in horror music. <laughs> <laughs> and this score delivers quite a bit of that. So it's no wonder this freaked me out when I was a kid. Yeah, we were talking about the atmosphere of this movie, and even the score is pretty strange. So with Mrs. Frawley crushed, the foreman rushes down the length of the machine. And at the back of it, it's this area where the sheets get folded. And for now, they're going to leave that to our imagination. (laughs) But you can imagine what's going on back there, right? Right. So John eventually arrives at the laundry and there's just blood splattered everywhere. The workers are covered in blood. Sherry Ouellette is just having a nervous breakdown. And further inside the factory, John is pointed to the back of the mangler. And he's shocked when he comes across what is easily one of the most gruesome deaths imaginable. Because Mrs. Frawley has indeed been folded like a sheet. And this is revealed to us by what is arguably Toby Hooper's second best use of a camera flash, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, when that camera flashed and you saw it transition into uh, Mrs. Frawley's uh, dead uh, corpse, if you can call it that, I mean, I just immediately got a flashback to uh, Texas Chainsaw, so (laughs) I just love that. (laughs) Yeah, it's beautiful. And again, this is another section where the unrated version definitely lingers a few frames longer and i even i was like oh my god you know (laughs) (laughs) and the person operating the camera here is a really strange character known as picture man and i think this character illuminates one of the issues with the movie which is there's clearly history that's alluded to with these characters, but it's never really explained or explored. Like when Picture Man asks Johnny if he's ever let him down, and he's like, yes. <laughs> what, like, what is that all about? Like, we don't know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I like the Picture Man scenes, and whenever he shows up, I think he really adds to whatever scene he's in. But he kind of starts off as this very weird and off-putting character and then in the middle of the movie he kind of shifts gears and all of a sudden he's sympathetic and we're supposed to empathize with him right (laughs) and it's just really off-putting not that i disagree with where they take his character but it is weird and i think back to what you said like you know in the short story like how much more time did we really get to live with this character or feel for him where here you kind of get this sense of whiplash and yeah i think that's one of my problems with the movie overall is like there's a lot left unsaid and kind of you have to piece together yourself but i feel like leaving a lot of that out ends up hurting the film uh i'm sure we'll talk about it more later on because the plot starts to really ramp up towards the end. But yeah, the Picture Man stuff is just the beginning of this uh, weird plot about the town and the history of it and what is going on behind the curtain in the shadows. His character delivers a lot of the necessary exposition, but at the same time, it's extremely vague. 
And I have to go back to the fact that this movie takes place in one night, too, because a little later, Picture Man's going to say, oh, the doctor's told me I'm dying. And well, guess what? He dies tonight. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, a little convenient there. I didn't even really realize it was on one night until you said it. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess it is. You know, all taking place in like eight hours. <laughs> I do like when Picture Man tells John that he's never gotten used to the gruesome nature of his crime scene photography. And John's like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just talk about Ted Levine's performance? Because I don't know. I went through like stages with it. I was like, oh, God, like this is going to be our lead. But then, you know, like 10 minutes in, I was like, this is our lead. Fuck yeah, you know, I'm down. I don't know what happened, but I was like, all of a sudden, like, in for it, you know, and I loved it. I love his performance in this movie as John Hutton, the detective. Like, it's so good. I don't know why. Can you explain to me? I mean, you've seen this movie more than I have, but I love it. <laughs> Dude, I wish I could explain it, but it's just, I don't know, it's magical for some reason, and I can't really put my finger on it either, you know? Like, I feel like. It's just a very unique spin on a detective, you know, like, right. Ted Levine is a very unique actor to begin with. And I don't think I saw him in anything else before this besides Silence of the Lambs. So it's great to see him on the other side of the coin, too, you know? Uh-huh. But yeah, I don't know. Like, like I said, he makes this movie for me for some reason, though, even Though I love everything else, there's just something about Ted Levine that just sells the whole thing. I also think it might have something to do with they're in this small town and they're I'm saying there because we're going to get introduced to Mark in a little bit, his brother-in-law. And they're like two outcasts in this town, but they're also very different from each other, you know, and I think that just really works. Yeah, I love the chemistry between John and Mark. I think their buddy relationship really uh, enhances the movie. And at first, you really don't get any formal introduction to Mark. It's just like, okay, here's this he's dude. Suddenly and you're there. like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, he's suddenly there and he's clearly close to John, but you're not sure what it is. And then later they drop, oh, it's his brother-in-law. And then you learn that John lost his wife and things start to make sense. But initially it's like, what the fuck is going on in this film? But either way, I think their chemistry in this film is really good. And I just love watching them throughout the whole thing interact and, you know, bicker and fight and try to solve this mystery in the town. And they couldn't be more opposite, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's basically right after this scene because John witnesses them carrying Mrs. Frawley out in a basket. And then the sheriff and the judge show up and railroad an inquest and they determine that the mangler is safe and they allow the laundry to resume operations. And then we cut to them having dinner and this is where we meet Mark. And yeah, he's Berkeley educated. He's an advocate of theoretical parapsychology, which is so convenient for the story, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you've got the realist 
and the idealist and they have that strong bond and you talked about it already but it appears that mark kind of lives just off a ways from john's house and when you get into mark's territory it's very mystical like there's shit in the trees windmills and statues and there's like a bridge you know it's like what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) it's so bizarre but it just works for some reason yeah it enhances that dreamlike atmosphere where it's like all right like this is weird but you know it's okay that it's weird i like it (laughs) yeah as mark sees john struggling to eat dinner john decides to tell him about the incident at the laundry and this is where we get one of the best lines in the movies when John's like, it folded her like a sheet. <laughs> and not only do we get that great line, but we actually kind of get to see it here. And then this scene also starts to hint at the underlying themes of the corruption of all of the elite in this town. But it isn't long before the mangler is on the attack again. This time, a steam hose breaks loose and winds up burning a net another woman we met at the factory. And in all of the commotion, Lin Su runs upstairs to Gartley, who takes her inside his office. And at this point, the movie's really just going to jump between scenes of John and Mark doing their own unique brand of investigation and Bill Gartley doing his thing up in this wonderful office set. But this is the first scene where we really get to spend some good time with Bill Gartley. And it's just so great whenever he's on the screen. Like, I can't get enough of this character performance here. It's probably my favorite Robert England performance besides Freddy Krueger. Like, I just think he (laughs) nails this. Yeah, it's so weird, but in a completely different way compared to a character like Freddy that you just have to adore it, you know? I especially like whenever they film him as he circles a character and we get the awesome rotating camera shot as a person stands still in the frame and Gartley's walking around them with his crutches and they really have fun with the audio of his leg braces. (laughs) Right. So he's talking to Lin Su, who was clearly rescued off the streets by Mr. Gartley. And he clearly has some expectations of her, shall we say. Gartley tells Lin Su to draw her bath, and she reluctantly invites him in to keep her company. And you know, it's a real shame that this movie failed to penetrate the horror community consciousness. Because this bit where Gartley steps up to Lin Su without his crutches and delivers the line, The one thing worse than the devil within is the devil without while removing his glasses and revealing his blind eye. That bit should be far more iconic than it is, if you ask me. Yeah, great scene. Him just, you know, getting rid (laughs) of his crutches, and then he has to pick his legs up as he's making his way towards Lin Su. Good shit. Yeah, I don't get it. You know, this movie just kind of failed to find an audience. And what audience it did find is just too small. And yet, Danny, as you've noted on the show before, the curse of the horror sequel knows no bounds and has no shame because somehow the Mangler wound up with not one but two sequels. Yeah, uh, 
Why? <laughs> How? I don't even, you know, like that speaks for itself. I don't have to say anything. I mean, come on. Horror sequels, they will just emit out of nothingness. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I had the Mangler 2 on VHS when I was doing the mom and pop VHS horror collection. But for the life of me, I cannot remember if I watched it or not. And then I did a short stint where I worked at a blockbuster. And every now and again, when they're getting rid of discs, they have this machine they run them through to destroy the disc because they want to throw it in the garbage and they don't want anyone to get free movies. And one time I got assigned that task and one of the discs was the Mangler Reborn. And I was like, nope, this is coming home with me. (laughs) I had to have checked that out, but it must have been so atrocious that it's completely been wiped from my memory. It was so atrocious, you you scraped it yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, probably just threw it out. Like, ugh. (laughs) I saw it's on Prime right now, and I'm tempted to add it to my hashtag 100 horror movies in 92 days challenge. Oh, God. If we're missing something in no sequels, and you're as big of a Mangler fan as I am, DM us and let me know. So later that night, John gets word of the accident. And he goes to visit Annette in the hospital. And Mark accompanies him. And as Annette lays out the events, it gets the gears turning in Mark's head. And on the drive home, the two notice a woman searching for her son, but they keep driving. And then once they get home, Mark asks John to come over and pops the question. Have you considered the possibility that the machine may be haunted? And we get my favorite line delivery in the film. Oh, yeah. Oh, (laughs) yes, Mark. That's the first thing that popped into my mind. (laughs) I love when Mark tries to read the book to him and he just shuts him down. He's like, Mark, this is bullshit. Bullshit. (laughs) Reality. Reality. Bullshit. Mark's just sitting there stunned. (laughs) Again, the chemistry between these two is just so good. It draws you in, and I can't explain why. Clearly, Sean can't explain why. We can only relay it to you in verbal form and hope you go and check out the Mangler. (laughs) (laughs) So back at the laundry, everyone's going home for the night, and Lin Su notices a spark from the Mangler and decides to check it out. And next thing you know, she's getting pulled into the machine. But the foreman rescues her, and she winds up losing one finger in the incident. Gartley summons her back to his office. And next thing you know, we're back with John and Mark. And despite putting his brother-in-law on blast about his theoretical parapsychology bullshit, he's suddenly all ears and invested. (laughs) So the bottom line is Mark believes Sherry is a virgin. And her blood started this process. He convinces John to go talk to her. And I'm sorry, but you cannot tell me this movie isn't a comedy when you've got Mark grabbing that old school hanging chain doorbell. He's like, far out, gothic man, and tries to pull it to ring the bell. (laughs) And then John rings the real doorbell while looking at Mark like he's a total dipshit. Like, that's funny shit, dude. (laughs) Totally. 
So let's talk about Sherry Olette, though, because this character, out of all the characters, is a bit of a mess. She is our final girl, with a twist, let's say. But she's kind of an unlikable character. Like, we saw her throwing shade at Lin Su. And besides that, she's basically been hysterical the entire movie. Including this great bit here when Mark pops the are you a virgin question and she's like, just get out! Get the hell out! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the character of Sherry definitely doesn't leave you with much to go off of in terms of likability. But for some reason, like, I really dug the performance, you know, like... I don't know. I thought she really did good with what she was given. And I, you know, was kind of rooting for her, ended up liking her by the end. But I totally agree with everything you said. Like, she's totally neurotic and definitely unlikable. (laughs) And I'm sorry, but she does not look 16. (laughs) (laughs) She did give just enough information to our duo to put the theoretical parapsychology musings of Mark to rest, at least in the eyes of John. So we're going to need some sort of incident to get this thing back on its supernatural track. And that comes in the form of a haunted icebox. This is the son of the bitch that hit Sherry. (laughs) So we see John and Mark drive up on a chaotic scene, and it turns out, a young boy has suffocated in the icebox that we witnessed being delivered earlier. We get another great comedic bit here with John telling Mark to stay in the car. And as John looks at the dead kid on the gurney, Mark just slides in the frame behind him. Of all the little jokes, that one gets me because it's like he's so adamant, like, stay in the car, Mark. And then Mark just walks up on the scene. <laughs> Yeah, you're totally expecting Mark to show up, but when he just, like, pops in the frame, it's just funny. (laughs) (laughs) Picture Man's also there to capture the moment, and Mark starts to inspect the icebox, and that's when he notices a bloody handprint, and the two surmise that it's the icebox that hits Sherry, and Mark begins to theorize about transference of evil. Just then, the icebox rustles a bit, and they find a bird inside surrounded by other dead birds. So we've got an icebox that's been eating kids and birds here. Nothing ridiculous at all about this, Danny. Especially when Mark gets attacked by the icebox as it chomps down on his arm. John does manage to get Mark free of the icebox, and then he goes to fetch a sledgehammer and just starts beating the crap out of it before unleashing this extravaganza of subpar special effects that I'm guessing are supposed to- Dog fuck. (laughs) You miserable piece of dog fucking. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm guessing these special effects are supposed to represent the spirit or demon escaping this icebox or something, right? Something like that. It really doesn't amount to much of anything (laughs) in the end or have any consequence to the plot, but it's here as a cool scene nonetheless. Well, it does get John back onto the mystical track. You know, if it weren't for this, I think he was ready to shut it down. No, I'm going to bed. (laughs) You have a six pack? (laughs) 
I do love when they tell the officer that's there, like, burn the icebox and bury it. Driver stake through its fucking heart. <laughs> <laughs> and this dude is just like, what the hell is going on? See, this is what I mean. Like, they're outcasts to even this other officer, you know? They just don't fit the mold of the people in this town. So despite being fairly on board in regards to the occult aspects of this case at this point, Johnny needs time to process this. And he tells Mark he needs to do some thinking, which I took as code for taking a shit, but he actually goes to the morgue and sits in the presence of Mrs. Frawley for some reason. And speaking of comedy again, what the hell is with this mortician and why is he whispering? But I have to ask, what do you think of the job he did on Mrs. Frawley? Like, can you imagine having <laughs> to do that? I just want to know what he filled her up with. I hate secrets. <laughs> <laughs> you know what else? Like, what the hell is with this building? Like, how many levels down does it go? And why the hell is Picture Man's office even further down than the morgue? Like, none of this makes any sense. The more you start to think about it, the less sense it makes. So let's just go with it, okay? <laughs> Well, before we go any further, I just had to ask, did you know the mortician is the actor who plays Picture Man? Oh, okay. That's interesting. I did not know that. And uh, yeah, that's cool. I was wondering, like, how heavy of a makeup job are they doing on Picture Man? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but yeah, that just confirms very heavy of a makeup job. <laughs> and it's a very impressive performance, especially because you see them both here back to back. And you would never think like, oh, that's the same guy, you know? Yeah, despite the uh, off-putting and sometimes weird decisions with Picture Man, I think overall it's a good performance. So it is what it is. And with John's thinking out of the way, it's time to go get a real good look at this supposed monster. And it's also about time we get to see John and Bill Gartley in the same room. You have to love how John sits right at the front of the mangler despite having all this knowledge of what's going on. You just have to, you know, you can't escape those uh, horror tropes. Yeah, especially when your villain is an immovable object. The characters just <laughs> have to go sit by it, you know? <laughs> exactly. And of course, it gets a hold of his trench coat and starts pulling him in. And John has to draw his gun and blast holes in his coat to break free from the mangler's grip. Nice bit of action here. Yeah, I love that creativity of like, okay, I don't have a knife or any weapon, but I have a gun. Let me just shoot my trench coat thin <laughs> until I can break free. And you know, this scene is worth it because they keep going back to the trench coat pissing off John enough times <laughs> where it just comes back around to just being hilarious. That is a bit of a running gag, isn't it? <laughs> After being attacked by the mangler, John finally confronts Gartley. And we get to watch Gartley parade his arrogance as John flexes his independence. I'm gonna shut you down. <laughs> Yeah, you see, John may be living in this small town, but he's not corrupt. He's not a part of this system. He's kind of operating on the fringes. But it isn't until he tells Gartley that, hey, all your money and all your powerful friends, 
don't mean shit to me, Gartley. <laughs> and this causes Gartley to go off on this villainous monologue that literally kind of spells out what's going on here, but hilariously goes right over John's head. <laughs> I like when Gartley tells John that we all have to make sacrifices. And John's like, you're right. Everything has its price. But I don't think John grasps the gravity of what Gartley is actually saying here. You know, he's soon going to learn, though. And look, we're pretty far into the movie now, but there's still a lot of time left and there's a lot of scenes. So I've kind of summarized what's going on here. And here are the threads. The people of wealth and in positions of power in this town have achieved that status by making a pact with the demon that resides inside the mangler. And I guess by chance, the accident with Sherry roused the demon on the eve of her 16th birthday. It just so happens, too, that the wealthy elites sacrificed their children to the machine at that age. And it's time for Gartley to come up with another offering, or else he's going to be the offering and pay the ultimate price himself. At the same time, Lin Su has now inadvertently been dragged into a pact due to the loss of her finger, which we're told later is a telltale sign of whoever has a pact with the demon. On top of all of this, the foreman decides to grow a conscience and is determined to put an end to the madness and destroy the mangler himself. And this winds up costing him his life as the mangler gets a hold of him. And he is spared a truly horrific death because an accomplice ends up cutting his arm off with an axe to keep him from getting crushed. What did you think of that bit? And what did you think of the transition of the foreman? Were you, did you see that coming? I did not see that coming, and I kind of brought it up earlier. But yeah, I liked this change from him kind of being this asshole barking orders at the workers to having these inner thoughts like you know what's really going on here and is is what i'm doing the right thing or what is the right thing to do and yeah he decides for himself like i have to turn the mangler off like there's just something wrong about it i don't agree with and yeah it ends up uh taking his arm but I thought he was going to job and totally die in the mangler, so I was surprised to see that he didn't and got away with his life. I kind of thought he bled out, <laughs> so I'm not sure he survived. <laughs> Maybe. Totally, uh, totally possible. Sherry also showed up at the factory and witnesses all of that. And at that point, Lin Su has made a full-on villain turn. And Lin Su and Gartley go after Sherry once she flees from the factory. And meanwhile, basically, John and Mark are piecing together everything I've just told you. We get a scene where they go to visit Picture Man, but he's dying. But he tells John there's something down in his office. And that is a book that documents all the sacrifices that the judge and the sheriff and Gartley have made. And Mark pieces it together that, oh, it's human sacrifices. And then they realize Sherry is about to turn 16 and she's next up on the Mangler block, so to speak. So we basically summed up everything that's going on. 
and it's going to lead us into our finale. So what are your thoughts? Anything to add also, Danny? Well, speaking of comedy, I just wanted to say, you know, you have this final scene with Picture Man and you have this somber music playing and it's kind of heartfelt, but I just thought it was so hilarious as he takes his like dying bloody cough. We get this (laughs) shot where like the camera just gets covered in blood and it's just so funny (laughs) (laughs) the blood loogie hitting the camera yeah that's a good one yeah it's just like hilarious and then you know picture man dies and he's like i have a gift for you john (laughs) (laughs) but it's like right after that shot too it's just like what the hell (laughs) but uh yeah i have a lot to say i think as much as I love Robert Englund's performance of Gartley and his villain monologue, I feel like this is where the movie starts to lose me with, you know, I get what they're saying about the wealthy making sacrifices to stay in power. You know, I totally understand that. But I feel like it's not enough to really follow or ever get invested in. It's, you know, we get the bare minimum for what's really going on here in this town. And I don't know, sometimes I uh, think I want more out of this movie. It does the job, but yeah, I think it just leaves me wanting a bit more. And I feel like from here on until the ending, it ends up uh, not reaching the heights that I wanted it to, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's hard to argue. Like, that's why I kind of decided to summarize at this point, because we have a solid hour. And then I also think it kind of drags a little too right, like, towards the end. There's here. nothing really memorable in the scenes that get us to the finale. You know, like, yeah, it spells everything out. And again, I mentioned, like, of course... There's a lot of social commentary going on here, but it's so minimal. Like it's you have social commentary just sort of crammed into a popcorn flick. And it's definitely more interested in being a popcorn flick than a social commentary flick. Right. It never says more than it has to or actually makes you ask questions in your own head. It's just kind of like elite bad, commoner good. And we're going to leave it at that. (laughs) It it never asks more of the viewer or of the movie itself. It just kind of establishes the plot and then immediately moves on from it. And we get our big finale with the mangler and the exorcism and all that shit. And that's all good and fun. And, you know, the movie as a whole is great to watch you should definitely check it out but yeah i just feel like you know i don't want to say it's bad or disappointing because i don't feel disappointed in this film but i do feel like it could be more than what it is if that makes sense you know it's hard to put into words but yeah i definitely like this movie and like the weirdness of it but i definitely want more from it You know, I know we're sitting here trying to figure out why Ted Levine is so great in this movie. And 
you made me think, you know, you do have the social commentary aspect of, you know, wealthy, bad, common or good. And I think what works in that regard, though, is the fact that Mark and John are caught somewhere in the middle, you know? And I think maybe that's why he's such a good character. Yeah, he's like almost there, you know? He's an officer of the law, you know? He is working for the community. At the same time, you know, he's still not quite there. And, you know, he gets these hints of like, oh, the doctor is in on it and all these other people are in on it and he's on the outside and it just frustrates him, you know? So that definitely aids in the performance and the, the character of John. First there's God, then there's country. <laughs> and, and then, then there's, there's just so law. many good lines. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love Ted Levine's voice and it's always unique, you know? <laughs> It just works for me, man. I don't know. I've had... I I agree. I I mean, I can't argue. We're on the same page there. I've got to shout out my good friend Rachel because she loves The Mangler. When I told her we were covering The Mangler, she said, oh, my favorite episode already. You know? (laughs) And (laughs) we would do just quotes of this movie that would crack us up. And, you know, other people would probably be looking at us like, what the fuck is wrong with you? But we're like, oh, yeah, this is the first thing <laughs> that came to my mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, we've got to this finale. Like you said, we're going to get some mangling, some exorcisms, some really shitty CGI beasts. So why don't we get into it and talk about this finale of the mangler? So, despite Mark's best effort to derail their heroics with this fervent need to rehearse his exorcism, him and John arrive at the Blue Ribbon Laundry in the nick of time to prevent Gartley and Lin Sue from sacrificing Sherry to the Mangler. And I love when John gets Gartley on the ground and he's like, So this is the price of power? And... While he's screaming in Gartley's face, Lin Su is just kicking Mark's ass dangerously close to the mangler. But suddenly Mark grows a pair <laughs> and tosses Lin Su onto the mangler. And in the unrated cut, we get a great shot of her body just getting flattened as she runs under the roller. And this causes Gartley to gain inhuman strength as he pushes John off of him. And he runs to the back of the mangler to find his precious Lin Su just demolished. Now, when you're talking about a mangler death, there are two steps to the carnage. First, you get crushed by the roller. And that's brutal and no doubt a terrible way to go. But fortunately, you're dead by the time you get to the second process, which is where the machine folds you like a sheet. And this is something Gartley is going to get to experience while still alive. Because John punches him, and the mangler grabs hold of him and places him on the folders. And how gruesome and glorious of an ending for our main human villain is this? Yeah, totally satisfying, totally unique. What we've been waiting for. Here's the money shot of the mangler. <laughs> Him getting folded like a sheet. 
So good. Yeah, and he has those leg braces and he's getting folded from the legs up. And at a certain point, he's literally just a twisted mess of metal and gore. It's really bad once it folds his upper thighs and his back basically rips open and is spurting blood. He's basically ripped in half. Even John is like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, what would this villain death be without one last diatribe? And of course, this is Robert Freddy Krueger England's, so... Of course, they have him choke on his own blood, attempting to use the word bitch. Don't tell me this isn't a comedy, dude. (laughs) Now, I want to be honest about something. Exorcism scenes scare the shit out of me. Like, religious shit in horror always scares me. And this scene really rattled my nerves as a young kid. But now it's just so corny. But I still love it. I guess it's the nostalgia, but they do this pretty cool shot where they're shooting it at an angle that gets the whole length of the mangler in the scene with John and Mark performing the exorcism. Any thoughts on this bit, Danny? Um, it's definitely corny. I think it definitely goes on for a little too long, despite the cool shots and, you know, the performing of the latin and saying of the prayers which is all really good shit but yeah i don't know i think towards the end i was uh kind of waiting for this film to wrap up and wanting to be over with it but uh yeah it's cool but it's certainly not my favorite right on well after an amen god damn it <laughs> which i thought was pretty funny The possession activity of the Mangler winds down, and our heroes think the day is saved. That is until they start munching on the antacids that Mrs. Frawley had, and Mark notices the pills contain belladonna as an ingredient, and their worst fears of this not being a simple random possession are realized. And just like that, the Mangler surges back to life and begins to rip itself from the machinery taking on this living, beastly transformation. And this sends our duo with Sherry running for their lives through these giant dark passageways. Like, what part of an industrial laundry factory this is, I will never know. (laughs) Gotta say, despite the bad early CGI here with the animated Mangler, I still think the design of it is really cool. You know, I just love the arms that look like they're made up of uh, chain links, you know, like it just looks cool, especially when they grab Mark. So even if it looks bad on a technical standpoint, it's still interesting to me. Yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to argue the wonkiness of all of this, but we do get that awesome kill here with Mark getting ripped in half by the mangler. You know, say what you will about everything else, but whenever it's time to kill someone in this movie, it's impressively bloody. (laughs) Like, they lived up to the name The Mangler, I think, in that department. Totally. So after Mark gets ripped in half, things only get weirder as Sherry and John retreat into some spiral staircase that appears to be part of some ancient catacombs. Like, I have no idea what the fuck is going on at this point. 
<laughs> yeah, your guess is as good as mine where the fuck the spiral staircase exactly takes place. <laughs> I guess this adds to the dreamlike quality, though, like you said. Yeah, I think we've surpassed dreamlike and entered nightmare. <laughs> schizophrenic delusions right and then all of a sudden down here sherry attempts to offer herself to the mangler since she assumes it's her it's after but john isn't having it he's like i'm a police officer (laughs) (laughs) they suddenly jump down the center of the spiral staircase and plummet into some water and they pull themselves out and hide and then the mangler seems to fall into the water and, like, that's it. <laughs> yeah, well, like, it just kind of ends, you know? There's no satisfying ending here. Like, the mangler is just done, I the guess. The mangler I don't can't know. swim, <laughs> so it's over. Yeah, what, what the hell is this shit? <laughs> yeah, they came up a little short there, but that's not the end of our movie just yet. Because we get a little epilogue here. And after an undisclosed amount of time, John heads to the Blue Ribbon Laundry to visit Sherry and check in on her, and he's shocked to discover the Mangler is back in its normal state, gears turning as the factory seems like it's back to business as usual. He then notices the fingerless Sherry, now sharing a striking resemblance in appearance and attitude to her now-dead Uncle Bill. She notices John and waves to him, Revealing that missing finger on her hand, the sign of anyone who has made a pact with the beast. And with that, John leaves. To what end? We don't know. All we do know is that despite the efforts of a brave few failing to stop the machine from turning, there is an ultimate price to pay for those who would do business with the beast. And that's the end of our movie. So I think you've pretty much told us a lot about your feelings on The Mangler, but do you have any final thoughts, Danny? The Mangler is fucking weird, bro. (laughs) But if you like fucking weird movies, why don't you check it out? I mean, it's got weird performances. It's got a weird atmosphere. It's got a weird story that doesn't really resolve in any traditional way whatsoever. But it's got an interesting premise, and it's got enough there to really grasp you. It totally took a hold of my imagination, and, you know, I can't really say I love this film, but I don't hate it. I definitely like it, and I think that's enough, you know? You don't have to love every movie. You don't have to like every movie, but some movies come along, and you're just like, you know, that was fun. That was interesting. And I'm glad I watched it. And I'm glad I watched The Mangler. I'm glad Sean decided to choose this movie for October because uh, it's certainly an interesting choice. If you haven't seen The Mangler and you're going to watch it, October is a great time of the year to do so, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, totally. It's got some uh, fall vibes going on, October vibes. Uh, just this dark atmosphere of a film. So definitely check it out. Put it on your list for October. Put it on for the kiddies (laughs) (laughs) trick-or-treating. Well, we've talked a lot about The Mangler, 
And we aren't done, but let's get right into it. What's your favorite kill in the Mangler, Danny? My favorite kill, you know, maybe an easy pick, but I think I gotta go with Mrs. Frawley. <laughs> the true, real first kill of our film. I like the buildup to this kill because we get that fake out where Miss Frawley is by the Mangler and she's kind of got her arm right near the front of it. Then she pulls away, but then a little later we do get her getting caught <laughs> in the mangler, and it's just a gory mess, you know? That's kind of how you can describe this kill, is just blood splattering everywhere, and everyone is in hysterics, especially Sherry, you know, trying to pull Mrs. Frawley out of there, and it's just got this quirkiness to it but it's also gruesome i feel like it's a perfect tone kill for this film you know if that's a term i'm gonna coin right now like a tone kill <laughs> yeah, a, t- a tone kill like a kill that sets up the tone of the film like this is it you know what i mean definitely so i i like this kill a lot and yeah you get the gory aftermath i mean You don't even have to really talk about that. We talked about plenty (laughs) of Mrs. Ferrali's disfigured mess. I mean, they carry her out in a bucket. What more can you say? (laughs) That's a great choice. It was uh, both of these choices for favorite kill and favorite scene were very hard for me. And it was very hard for me to not choose Mrs. Ferrali because I love the term you just coined a tone kill because it totally is right like as soon as you see that kill now you know what you're in store for what this kill has that a lot of the other kills don't is the tension because exactly totally you get the bits where the safety bar is like raising up like it wants to eat her and she isn't looking and then her pills are stuck under the safety bar and she's reaching for it And then just the gore is so good and so real looking. Like when it crushes her arm, you get that really dark black blood, you know? There's a sense of buildup and tension to this kill that, yeah, I think the other kills are lacking a bit, you know? Towards the end, I feel like we're just throwing people in the mangler, you know? No rhyme or reason. Right. But here, there's like, you have this sense of unfamiliarity and you're not sure what exactly is going on. So I think that's what really draws me in towards this kill. Last thing I'll say about your choice is I love when she's been pulled in and the mangler is just going haywire and the safety bar is just chomping up and down. (laughs) It's got a mind of its own. (laughs) Well, Sean, lay it on us. What's your favorite kill? So I recently went and saw Terrifier 2. And that was the first movie that made me feel old. Because I remember the time when my parents would be like, the movies you watch are sick and disgusting. What's wrong (laughs) with your generation? You know, all that kind of talk. And I'm sure their parents were saying the same thing about the movies they were watching too. And so on and so forth. But Terrifier 2 was the first movie to make me have that kind of reaction. Like, oh, kids today are watching some gruesome shit. But you know what? (laughs) That's funny, because I've been hearing a lot about people, like, fainting seeing Terrifier 2. Not to go off on a tangent. Right, right. But, yeah, I've been seeing articles about this shit, and I wasn't sure if it was just 
bullshit from mainstream media or it was actually this gory oh it's look i'm very open to a lot of horror and a lot of it was fine but it definitely crossed a few lines for me at a certain point and that's fine you know but i was definitely like whoa that was that was a whoa that was a bit much you know (laughs) but i'll tell you what upon watching the unrated death of bill gartley it reminded me that regardless of how shocking you have to be today to get a rise out of people, the movies I watched and loved when I was young were indeed sick and disgusting too. <laughs> and I love them for it. Like, what a gruesome death. It's very hard not to pick Mrs. Frawley, especially considering how important that kill is. But we get some incredible gore. The only thing missing in Mrs. Frawley's death is the aftermath at the back end of the mangler that's only hinted at. That bit of nastiness is saved for this moment here, especially in the unrated cut. Just seeing Gartley folded like a sheet. It's a show stealer of a kill, if you ask me. And... Let's take a step outside of the actual story here and movie and think of it through filmmaking eyes. Like, how many steps were involved in this process? I can only imagine everything that went into this. And I watched an interview with Robert England on my disc of The Mangler, and he talked about having a panic attack and being very claustrophobic because this was a real machine and he was really in there, you know? But like he says in the movie, we all have to make sacrifices. And I'd (laughs) say those sacrifices were worth it because it sure as hell made for one unforgettable on-screen death. A death of a character that you hate and love equally. Because Robert England is just that good. Yeah, that's that's crazy, man. Yeah, especially when you put it into terms like that. Just like, you know, we didn't bring it up much, but just the sets of the Mangler and everything that goes into making it look how it looks and work how it works and how it aids to the kills is such a work of art, you know? For sure. A weird, good, bad strange work of art with a lot of scenes so what's your favorite danny well sean you don't have to mince words when i say my favorite scene you're gonna say what the fuck i can take it but my favorite scene is uh i think when john and mark come upon the icebox murder (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what it is about this scene but it's like kind of the culmination of the build-up to the occult themes in this film all coming ahead and just like John kind of realizing that everything Mark has been saying this entire time is right and how he just takes his frustration and anger out on the icebox and then knocks the top part of it off and we get this emergence of energy demonic energy whatever the hell came out of that icebox (laughs) you get so many great lines and then like they're bathed in the light from 
the police lights, the red and blue. And it just looks great. Like this scene is just so weird and so, again, dreamlike, dreary, odd, (laughs) you know, every synonym for weird you could use for this scene. And then the icebox attacks Mark. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the scene just like never ends, you know, it's just so... It just keeps going places, you know, and I also feel like everything after the scene is kind of where I got lost or uninterested, but this scene was like the culmination of like what was building up in the first half of the film, and I liked it for that, so that's my favorite scene. I love how disheveled he looks, and he's like, the fuck was that? (laughs) (laughs) And then I don't know... If you noticed, but when he's like, you got a hammer and he goes to get the hammer from the garage, (laughs) he like trips over a bunch of shit. He's like, fuck, he's all stumbling around back there. That shit was great. (laughs) Yeah, that shit is hilarious. Like there's like so many funny moments in this scene, but it's like at the same time meant to be taken seriously. (laughs) I don't know. I love that juxtaposition. I love that at odds ends feeling. You know, for this scene. Yeah, that's definitely a surprising choice, but it's also really the only truly supernatural or horror-infused sequence that happens outside of the factory, you know? So, Sean, give us your favorite scene in The Mangler. I've already expressed how much I love this movie. But what I live for in this movie is those moments with Bill Gartley in his office. So for me, it came down to the confrontation between John and Gartley or the first scene with Lin Su. And the scene with Lin Su takes the edge because to me, that bit is played more creepy and uncomfortable than the somewhat humorous confrontation. Which in reality is just a scene full of expertly delivered exposition. But with Lin Su, we get that great bit of Gartley circling her while monologuing. We get the excellent bit with his throat box going out of sorts as his creepy intentions become even more clear. And I just really love the bit when she invites him into the bathroom and he puts those crutches away and starts making his way over to her. And then he pauses to deliver my favorite line. And probably favorite shot in the movie when he unveils the dead eye. So how can the scene that has my favorite line and favorite shot not be my favorite scene? So that's it. Right on. Great scene. Totally great moment in this film. And that was The Mangler. You should check it out. For this Halloween spooky season, Fraternity recommends The Mangler. Go see it any way you can. We hope you had a good time with us tonight, and we hope you come back for two more weeks in October, and then plenty beyond. We've got so much to show you, so stay tuned, and this is Danny and Sean signing out. See you later. Good night, everybody.